Hello, everyone, and welcome to Radio YNP for the Carter Wickham Show. I am your host, Carter Wickham, and I want to say thank you for joining us today. We have a very special episode in store for you with the leader of the Green Party, Claire Bailey, MLA, and a young environmentalist, Sean Patrick Houston. So thank you for listening, and let's jump right into it. Thank you for coming on the show today, Claire. Pleasure. Thanks for the invite. And we're also joined by Sean Patrick Houston, who is a young environmentalist who is here to talk to us about climate change as well. So thank you for coming on, SP. Thank you. Great to be here. So firstly, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. It's a pleasure to have both of you here. And we're just going to dive into it. So at the moment, we are undergoing a crisis, if you will, in terms of our environment. Uh, yesterday, we have blackouts in Brazil due to fires in the Amazon. We have ice caps melting, risks of sea levels rising. To the average person, this can be seen as quite a frightening string of events. So my question to you, Claire, is what does the average person need to do in order to sort of protect and save the environment? The biggest thing I think people can do is to start putting pressure on their governments and on their public decision makers, um, certainly on corporate business as well. Um, we, I have read a report where it claims that the top 100 global corporations are responsible for 70% of the world's carbon emissions. So I think that a lot of people take it on themselves as in doing everything that they can within their own environment, within their own houses, and absolutely that's important and we want to encourage everybody to keep doing that but if we really need to wake up to the urgency at a global level of how fast and how rapid this climate emergency is coming at us it's here it's now and we are feeling the impacts but over the next decade it's going to get so severe that I don't believe that a lot of people understand the the seriousness of the changes that need to be made and if we need to start tackling it properly we need proper legislation we need proper strategies and we need to deal with the source of the problems and at a global level they are global corporate business so you talk about corporations there so what do we have to do in order to stop them because it's it's very good it's very easy to say you know 70 percent corporations but how do we prevent them from doing the polluting well one of the biggest inspirations that I, that I've seen emerge in, in recent times is uh, movements such as Extinction Rebellion, the school strikes and yep. what Greta Thunberg has been able Thunberg sorry has been able to, to achieve. Um, and when you think that the power of one person, you know, a lot of people think that as an individual you can't achieve much change. I just hold Greta up at the minute. You know, she just started sitting outside our, our government um parliament buildings by herself and we now have global school strikes, you know, and, and a whole youth movement at a global level starting to get um, behind her and stand up to, to everything that she's um, trying to put out there as well. So, you know, never underestimate the power of the person, the power of yourself. Um, so it's grand. I know that there's a big push on single-use plastics, on trying to get the messages out there and people doing what they can, and, and please keep doing it. Um, but as I say, the more that we can collectively come together, um, then the pressure then needs to be fed up into decision-makers, into corporations, into business, and most importantly, up into government legislative levels. So, go ahead, Aspen. I totally agree with the whole corporation thing, but do you know I think there's there's a real personal responsibility for like for every person on the planet because you know, an example I've seen recently is the whole thing that the the Amazon rainforest with the Natal the palm oil. Yeah. And what's been happening is the rain all the trees have been getting cut down in order to plant these palm trees, which will be used in almost all sorts of food products. Natal being one one of the biggest ones. Yeah. 
And I feel, does there not need to be like a personal responsibility in every person to boycott these products? Stop uh, eating Nutella. Yeah. yeah. But uh, no, it's, it sounds funny, but do you, do you not think like raising awareness has to be one, one of the key things as well? Without a doubt. Um, and it does come down to those personal choices, but I think that a lot of people don't have the information. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, you say Nutella, then we all look, everybody now has mobile phones, yeah. and you look at the environmental damage that they do as well. Yeah. So it's about having a look at... Um, how we live um, and again studies have shown that it, for example you trace this the, the standard um, of living across the world uh, so if we were all to live like the average American citizen mm. US citizen it would take five planet earths to sustain that level of resource for that style of living here in the western Europe um, if everybody in the world was to live the lifestyles that we do it would take three planet earths to sustain that level of resource but yet if we live like um, smaller African countries for mm. example or villages in India or sort of global south countries it would take half a planet earth mm. to sustain that level so, you know, so there's a global imbalance about the life choices and the lifestyles that we are living even here in Belfast uh, we are one of the most car dependent cities in the whole mm. of the UK you know but and that's where it comes back to there is the individual without a doubt um, but that individual has to be empowered to make sustainable choices and at the minute I don't think that we do enough to offer them the choices so public transport for example here even just in this city is terrible mm, and yeah. we have underinvested. you know it doesn't get you from A to B uh, it doesn't take you where you actually need to be so therefore a lot of people use their cars and it's that individual mode of transport that needs to be tackled yeah. but that's hard for an individual to put into place and that's where you know there's not one without the other and legislative legislative change needs to come and when we talk about the energy that we use um, just within our own households as well that energy source again we are failing to invest in sustaining um, or maintaining or even producing uh, that whole infrastructure here and the recent example of Harland and Wolf for example yeah. and we've seen the decline of that shipyard yeah. and that's a decline of a highly skilled uh, workforce um, that could be doing an awful lot so that whole infrastructure could be used to then transition ourselves into a more sustainable uh, society we could be producing our own energy for example mm-hmm. you know now we have government uh, a few years back set the targets that all our electricity we, we should be using our, our electricity sorry we should get 40% of that from renewable sources and that target has now been met but now we have no government to up that level yeah. and to start investing and yeah. in, you know if we can get more of that where do we store it how do we hold it that infrastructure is missing so I know exactly what you're saying and I absolutely 100% agree yeah. um, but one doesn't come without the other so we need to empower people to make the choices and we need to start looking about a just transition because if we do it very quickly like we do need to then those if we don't make this a just transition those most vulnerable will suffer the worst impacts you know and that balance has to be Mm. got right as well just uh, what you said about you know if we live like an american five planets but if we live like some people do in africa it'd be half a planet is that realistic though because you know as SP and I have both been, SP's been to Kenya, I've been to Zambia, and we've sort of seen, you know, how they live, and it's not, nothing like we, we live here, so is that realistic just to say that, you know, we should, are you saying we should try and live like them, or if, if you see what I mean? Yeah, no, I'm not saying that we should live like them, mm-hmm. I think we need to start looking at our own life yeah. choices, so if you look at um, the US, for example, how do they plan their towns, how do they plan their cities, how do they plan their infrastructure, um, and it's all about using as much space as possible. Yeah. I mean, the one time that I've been in the States, I remember feeling overwhelmed at 
the size of everything. Yeah. You know, and mm. then coming back here and you realise even the footpath is just a normal mm. size. But when you go to the States, it is yeah. huge. Yeah. You know, so it could, when I'm talking about that, it, it's it's about making things manageable. So the, the whole design and planning of towns and cities in the States is based around a car. For example, you can't go to a corner shop to get a pint of milk without doing maybe a five mile journey in a car because it's so big, yeah. you know. So that's what I'm talking about. It's not okay. going back to living in mud huts or, you know, sort of sharing water supplies from the local well. That's not what I'm talking about. It's about just transition, proper planning and sustainability at the very heart of that. Right. I think what I take from that, you know, the average American would need five planets is that and com- in comparison to the say a small African country needing half planet is that the responsibility is on Western countries because we're the ones yeah. who've actually created this problem. Our, you know, excessive lifestyles or our greedy lifestyles have caused this. And, you know, all, all these corporations all come from the right wing sort of, you know, Western countries. So the responsibility is on the, the end governments more than the, the LEDCs, if you if Absolutely. you like. Yeah, no, I hundred percent agree in terms of, you know, needing the five mile journey. I lived in America for several years and you know, you can't just walk somewhere. It is completely based on if you don't have a car, you're not going to have a good way of life because you can't do certain things. So you touched on the fact that we don't have a government in order to up, you know, the levels at at the moment we're up 40% to increase it is not having the storm and institutions. Is that affecting the climate, the environmental climate here in the north i have no doubt at all um and we haven't had a storming executive for over 30 months now but within that 30 months i think that there has been a huge social shift um in terms of environmentalism and the last time that we had an election coming from the green party usually we would go canvas and knock doors and people would sometimes ask you know how are you relevant to our local politics and mm. um, are you not all about ozone layers or amazonian rainforests and and we have those conversations the last time that we had an election we were knocking doors people were engaging with us so we didn't have to bring up environmental issues they were bringing up air pollution they were bringing up the ipcc report they were talking about time frames they got the urgency because they can start to see it in their own environment they can mm. see the flooding they can see the lack of planning they can see that we need to start making changes so i was really really heartened by that um but at the same time We've nowhere to go to implement the change that's needed. So when industry and sectors are calling out for the legislation that they need to implement, you know, we have, and you've touched on it there as well, a real hyper neoliberal economic system um, and, and it's capitalism at its most fervent. You know, so corporations and business is built around that economic model. Um, so they are, business is beholden to the shareholders so they are all about making profit but yet they want to make the changes because they know that their consumers and their customers are demanding the change so uh, again it's that imbalance so they're crying out for legislation they're crying out for targets they're crying out for something to pull this all together um, and we need to bring again big financiers into this as well so Belfast City Council for example have just um installed well there's a commissioner now working from the city hall um the Resilience Commissioner, I'm not sure if you're aware. And and I think that she's been imposed for two years now and I think has made a huge change. Um, um, And, you know, at at that institutional, at that governance level, um, 
And she has identified that climate change and cybersecurity are the two big risks that Belfast as a city needs to be resilient towards in the future. So I know that there is a lot of work being done in the background, but you know the lack of government means that we have nothing to pull all that together and to set targets, to start funding, to make priority, to create legislation. So I absolutely do feel that it is having a very bad negative impact. Just as you talk about the Resilience Commissioner, I had an opportunity to sit in one of her talks and what she said about climate change is actually, for Belfast, is quite shocking. Yeah. You know, she, I'm sure you've seen uh, the photos of what would happen if sea levels rose in worst case scenario. And it's the fact that we're not just planning for worst case scenario because, you know, it's the safe thing to do. We're planning for worst case scenario because she believes Belfast is going to face the worst case scenario in terms of climate change, which is quite, you know, it's a shocking thing to think about that in the next 20 years, yeah. you know, the docks could be flooded, you know. Absolutely. Which and she's, it wasn't her that found this out. Yeah. You know, we've been campaigning and we've been trying to get this on the agenda for an awful long time. Um, and I think you addressed that there SP earlier as well. Do you know, th th this is how we need, this is the information that we need to get out there. This is what people need to be made aware of. Um, so who's suppressing those messages? Who's not taking them as seriously? You know, mm -hmm. we've had an environment minister here, Sammy Wilson, who denied climate change was even happening, you know. So it's, it's about that level. So when we have, you know, those big decision makers, ministers, putting these messages out, people find it easy to ignore because you don't know you're getting mixed messages but absolutely and that's where I think that um, Gronje Long as the Resilience Commissioner has given real authority and impetus to getting that message out there so when we inform people when we let them know that this is not something in the future this is happening now you know that the whole cathedral quarter in Belfast city centre will disappear with sea level rises mm -hmm. because it will be underwater we that will be gone that's people's homes yeah. that's their business that's their livelihood you know and then you start looking at the stresses on our infrastructure all around the city as well so ni water are telling us that um that they can no longer cope with the demand on their services the amount of new building and development that is going on in the city um is happening without taking account or investment in our existing infrastructure so belfast city council then have a target that they want sixty thousand more residents in the city centre within the next few years and that's great it's, I would love to see the city centre rejuvenated but at the same time there's, no government, there. There. There's, yeah. there's no government there to invest in the infrastructure needed to allow these people to live properly yeah. you know joining them up to the water the, water, the sewage mm -hmm. the electricity systems all those types of things so that's the messages that need to get out there and I think the Resilience Commissioner is doing a great job. But see, see, even though like there's so many people who, who do know about the dangers of the environment and, and the risk of losing parts of Belfast to rising sea levels, but there's still a big, like a large like amount of people who are ignorant of these things, whether that's by choice or because they simply they, they don't know. How, as a party, would you go around like go about raising awareness? Because in my opinion, the environmental issues is the biggest. You know, you've got parties like Sinn Féin and DEP and they're bickering over, you know, things like the Irish Language Act or same-sex marriage, which are huge issues. But see, at the end of the day, if we don't sort the environmental one out, those issues won't even exist. There won't be a planet for them to be even, you know, a notion. Yeah. So how do we go about, you know, informing people that this is what needs this is what needs to happen? You know, this, this is the big issue. And we can't not have a government for 30 months over issues like this when there's, like, you know, 
and looming Agreed. Armageddon, do you know what I mean? Yeah, and, and again, Brexit is the other big distractor yeah. in this one. Um, and so at a national level, we're dealing with, with that crisis as well. Um, and, you know, people really need to get their heads around, you know, Brexit, no Brexit, borders, no borders, yeah. you know. And of course, the equality and rights agenda is really, really important. But um, environment knows no borders. Yeah, and it is here, it is now. Um, and I know that, that we have, you know, our conflict and our legacy to deal with. And we are living in a divided island but we need to tackle this as a whole island and not just on the island of Ireland but across these islands east west north south um, and again Brexit is a huge threat to that as well because by removing ourselves from cooperation with the European Union now is not the time right. we need to all be working together not just at a European level but at a global level so there are many factors in all that um, and and it's huge but again I would put um, poverty on the th that list of of issues we live you know I don't think that we've really seen the outworking of a proper peace process fed through into our most deprived communities um, and when you're living in poverty when you're living in deprivation when you're living with trauma when you're dealing with mental health issues when you've got all these other things to compete with um, you know I won't be out forcing people to make you know, climate change top yeah, of the list, yeah, yeah. but this is where the, the decision makers need to come in. This needs to be seen in its whole, and that's where the just transition is absolutely central to that. You know, we need to look at the needs of people. We need to rebalance our investment, and those in most need need to be given the most to become resilient, just um, equally across the board. So uh, uh, there's so many. I mean, it could go into a whole program yeah, just yeah. talking on that alone. Yeah. Um, so I don't blame people in general for not picking up the, the message. I blame the state of society that we have um, and that we haven't addressed an awful lot of the inequalities that we suffer, quite the opposite. I think that we've made them worse and we've fractured them even more. Um, and that's a huge barrier. So you, sorry, um, you, talk, you talked about, so sort of lack of legislation at the moment. So say hypothetically Stormont came up tomorrow, mm -hmm. would the Green Party be bringing forward private member, private member bills in order to start legislation? Private members' bills are one way to do it. Um, we work. The, the most of the work at the assembly was always done through committees. Um, we have a system system of governance here where it's a power sharing executive. So it's not like every other government or most other governments around the world where you have single party rule. So all ministers um, and government cabinets will be working from the same manifesto. So ours is power sharing. So it's very hard to get things through at that level. At the same time, what we have is a system of ministerial silos so for example the education minister doesn't have to talk to the justice minister doesn't have to talk to the environment minister doesn't have to talk to the deputy first ministers so they all work within their own departments and they don't do joined up strategy and that's a huge flaw in our system of governance so that's something that we really work hard to try and overcome so during the last mandate um steve nagney was our sole mla and he was able to get through via a private member's bill a piece of legislation um, that asked, that called for all government departments to work together and collectively when planning any um, services um, to children and young people. So that is now passed as law. So that broke that silo mentality, but yet we don't have a government at the minute to try and implement that now. Um, and they're all struggling to, how do we do that? And permanent secretaries who have been used to just running their own department yeah. now have to start working. So things like that need to be done. Um, and we see that that private members bill that was put through as a huge stepping stone toward that. Um, and as long as we keep that system going, 
um, I think that will get better outcomes. So that's what we would really be pushing for. But most of the work really got done at committee level. And yep. um, what you'll see behind the scenes, it's not sexy selling, you know, on Sunday politics or whatever, because bad or good news rarely sells. But people always got on. Cross party working happened at that um, level. And as long as we have, you know, the the again, this is where it comes back to grassroots support. If those movements that are happening at the minute can put pressure on the government. I think that if we had um, Stormont up and going, we could see um, a huge shift in decision making, without a doubt. I mean, uh, I do agree that it's, it's a very, I've talked to many people about this, it's a very odd form of politic where we don't actually, where the departments don't work together. Because if the environment minister wants to bring a proposal forward, we need finance to give us yeah. the money for it, and then you need Department of Infrastructure, or, you know, Absolutely. all that. So yeah. it is a quite odd sort of form of politic. Eva? Um, I just was, if you don't mind, taking it back just the sort of the individual. Yeah. And like, I totally agree with everything you say, but I think a lot of our lifestyles are, you know, are the reason for this, you know, the problems yeah. that we're facing. And if, just a, a modern example is, you know, there's new surgeon vegans, you know, who are doing their best to try and take, take it on their own. But You're one of them, must be. <laughs> well, I'm trying to be anyway, but... <laughs> Like the corporations, for example, say like the dairy or the meat industry, yeah. like they contribute twenty three percent of the overall carbon emissions. Now, who's eating the meat? Do you know what I mean? Who's who's buying the products? Yeah. So, what what legislation would actually tackle that and raise awareness to people? You know, like this this is what you need to do. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's just not too sure uh, how to legislate for people's diets. A tricky one, do you know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. But no, I but even like education. Yes. Like yep. education is key, and you're absolutely right. You know, trying to promote um, vegetarianism or veganism, yeah. or even just that simple message that meat's a treat. Yeah. You know that it's not something that you have to have within your three meals a day, mm -hmm. every day. You know, you're baking for Brexit uh, for breakfast. Sorry, Brexit obsessed. <laughs> <laughs> you're baking bap for bre mm. breakfast, and your chicken sandwiches for lunch, and your big steak for your dinner. That's unsustainable, of course. Um, so, 100% agree with that. Where I come at from a legislative or public decision-making um, element then is we have a strategy um, as executive approved and put out there to support our um, agriculture sector, and that's a huge sector. It's, yeah, it's yeah. a big economic driver, big jobs, um, and, and supporting our farmers in there. But we have um, something called the Going for Growth Strategy, which was endorsed by the executive and has been rolled out. And it's not supporting our smaller farmers mm. and, you know, at that producing for local levels in terms of seasonal produce or just supporting yeah. our local farmers. What it's about is about supporting and maintaining and building um, intensive farming. So the big factory farming that you're getting. So if you've heard about the, the pig farm in Newton Abbey or yep. intensive chicken farms and just three letters RHI might, yeah. you know, back that one up as well. So we're putting in place big mega farming. Um, well, that's not meat for us to eat. Yeah. That's for us to export, primarily to China, um, because China are one of the most polluted mm. countries in the world, and I did visit there as well uh, and seen firsthand <laughs> of what was going on. But they are now on the hunt for more sustainable sources, clean food, clean access, and we're taking that up as an economic boom, basically, to know here's yeah. our economic um, opportunities. But we're wrecking our own environment mm. and producing stuff that's not for us. Do you think that, do you know the way, like, that's that's great economic opportunity, but on the other hand, it's bad for the environment? Do you, think, do, do you think that would happen if, you know, the economic minister or the environmental minister and the, was it the finance? Probably economy minister, there, yeah, yeah. If they work together, would that happen? But, do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. the, Could we have an economic boom with if sustainable 
you know, foods as well. Not with the current economic model yeah. that we live under. And, and that's what needs to be addressed. Yeah. You know, we need to, if we want to get serious about tackling climate change, then one of the fundamental changes that has to, come, has to happen is how we do business, how we trade, and the economic model and system that we live under. That is fundamental and that has to change because we cannot sustain the way we live and the economic system that defines that because it is the problem mm. you know and again it goes back and i know SP what you're saying about the individual but i'm always a wee bit re reticent to blame the individual because the individual can only act within the parameters that is set out for them and that is the economic model is capitalism capitalism has the end and if we truly want to just transition into a more sustainable future then we have to have an economic model that fits that purpose mm. yeah, but it would be very sort of personally i think it'd be sort of unrealistic to say just get rid of capitalism because it's an economic model which has ran for a very long time and i don't see going anywhere anytime soon so what can we do in the meantime in order to try and create a sustainable planet because getting rid of capitalism i just don't think well, will I, happen I, can I just i actually before this when we were talking i was like getting rid of capitalism you know that doesn't, I, I didn't understand, but now you've said it, you know, all these problems that have arose through the fact that the, the factories and the producing of carbon have all come from this cap, capitalist government. I, like, what can, but what I want to know is, what can we do to get rid of that? Because we're, like, we've got Boris Johnson, Donald Trump, we're in an increasingly more far-right society. What can, like, is it protests in the street? Because we haven't got a government to go through, so what are we actually, what can we do right now to try and do something? Because we haven't got time to... To sit about and talk about it. Then, here comes the power of the individual, you know, and it's about you know actively making decisions yeah. that are sustainable. Um, and it's not about getting rid of capitalism. I think capitalism has had its day, and we cannot stop climate change. The climate emergency is here. The mm -hmm. climate crisis is upon us. So if we want to keep maintaining, if you think that you know another economic system is just not going to happen, well, I'm telling you that. The crisis that is upon us mm -hmm. is going to do that for us. That's the message that needs to be put out. So if we want to survive that in a just um, way that, you know, is about supporting individuals and our, you know, society can thrive, then it, it only, it, it's just sense mm. that the economic system has to change with but that so it's not that i'm starting up as an anti-capitalist much as i am you know going this you know down with this sort of thing yeah. but you know i'm not using the climate crisis as an opportunity to knock capitalism i'm trying to sh say that the crisis and the, you know we really need to get the message out there i don't think many people understand the the severity of change that we have to bring in in order to survive and exist in a sustainable way to deal with the next decade. And that's not a long time. So capitalism has been with us for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It has caused these societies that we live in. It has caused our culture. It is, you know, it, this is endemic, but within a very short space of time, within the next decade, the, the you know, the, dealing with the outworking of that is gonna ultimately change how we do business, mm -hmm. how we relate to each other, how we network and everything that goes along with that. So it's not that we need to take on two, we need to deal with climate change and we need to eradicate capitalism. They're both the same. What other economic model would we need, though, to replace capitalism? If well, you we're need to start looking at more economically at a local level. We need to start looking at things like circular economies, for example. Um, the capitalist system that we have, you know, so I'll use single-use plastics as as an example. Plastic is an amazing invention. 
um, but what we do, it, plastic's basically indestructible, but yet we use plastic for a momentary thing, mm. a bottle of water, 50 mils of water, yep. glug, 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 there's a plastic bottle dumped, yeah. that's waste, you know, but that plastic is not waste, you know, so, so it's about starting to shift that, you know, and it's, the, the reason it's in a, by the way, water's free, <laughs> yeah. but we're all conditioned now to pay a pound for a bottle of water um, in a plastic bottle you know <laughs> just putting that out there yeah. there's capitalism you know yeah. in action uh, we're so paying for the bottle not the water <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah. exactly um, so it's those types of things you know but then uh, sorry I lost my where did it come in there I <laughs> forgot why I used that uh, as an example a circular economy the circular yeah. economy so it, it's this thing about one person's waste is another person's fortune you know and it's about investing in that um, so you know are waste that plastic can be used for something else. Yep. Prefer it not to be used for water in the first place. But you mm -hmm. know, now that we've got it, and it's about that investment. It's about not not for profit, um, but for need kind of businesses at that community level yeah. as well. It's about the sharing. It goes back to the library mentality, basically. You know, libraries were set up as, you know, community resource for people to, you know, gain, share knowledge, um, read books, but it, not just, but that was the community hub. That's where yeah. when you create spaces, for people to be without, you know, the tech box, without having to sit down and pay four pound for a cappuccino mm -hmm. or whatever, just create space, let things happen. Um, what you'll see is people generate their own networks. Uh, and I'll just use the vault, which is um, a big artist studio uh, space over in East Belfast at the minute. Uh, and a lot of the community work that's going on there, um, and y they're setting up even uh, power tool libraries, for example. You know, yeah. um, so you don't all have to own your own drill and sander and hedge cutters and these things. You can just go there and swap and share. There's plenty of these things in existence. We all don't need that individual unit yeah. to be. And it's, that's what I mean about circular. It's about building community rather than building individualism. And we need to start looking at things like that. But, you know, at a bigger level outside of just the individual, this is where we need big financiers like the big banks, big corporations to get on board with this again. And the change from there is that they need to start acting in the interest of what people need rather than gaining profit for shareholders. And that's where the yep. change has to happen. A big, uh, a big part of climate change, as you said, about single-use plastics and all, you do, you know, recycling is a very big thing, right? And a model that I'm used to uh, in Canada is you, this is how I made my pocket money, right? For about a month, we would save all our bottles, all our cans and everything, went down to the recycling center, and they gave me, you know, like five cents per bottle and stuff. Do you ever see something like that happening over here? Because I think, I think that creates a different mentality. It actually gives you an incentive to save your bottle, and then you know it's going to be recycled, That's rather than throwing it on the ground or throwing it in a bin where it's not going to be recycled. Without a doubt. Um, and when Money's I grew a good up, incentive When sometimes. I grew up here, you got your lemonade in a glass bottle. Yeah. There were no plastic bottles, yeah. and you kept your, you know, the, the bottles were returnable. So we got the milkman came to the door every day and left you know, pints of milk, yeah. but they were in glass bottles, and your empties were left out, and he collected them again, that type of thing. But when you finished your lemonade bottle, brought it back to the shop, and you got 10p back yeah. for your bottle. Yeah. But now they're in plastics, and they're disposable. So 100%, we need to go back. This is what I'm talking about, circular economies, yeah. those types of efforts. But they're also more sustainable materials that were being used. You know, So again, why not put it in a glass bottle rather than a plastic bottle? Because it is more sustainable. Yeah. It is more reusable. Mm -hmm. You know, And all those types of things are really important. So I think we have actually the Greens through North Down um, and Belfast City Councils have brought forward motions for, the, you know, for those um, returnable schemes to be implemented. 
but also for more water fountains um, to be in the city. Because I remember even as a child, um, although we've lost a huge amount of the Victorian heart of this city, but you know there were water fountains in. Uh, Corn Market, for example. There isn't any at the moment. Exactly, they've all gone. Don't know where they've gone. You can, but see, yeah. you can see some of them. There's that one there. Um, do you know the Dublin Road near Dublin yeah. Cinema? Is and they're beautiful. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. beautiful. But Parks had them. I grew up in the Falls Road and Dunville Park in the Lower Falls. It had just a big water fountains and mm-hmm. stuff in them as well. You know, so it's those types of things. You know, by taking away that public resource, you know, mm. free access. Yeah. Now we all drink water out of one pound plastic bottles. It's quite interesting, <laughs> actually. You know, you talk about water fountains and you know, the old recyclable centres and things like that. You sort of wonder, you know, I mean, even Belfast used to have a tram system. Yeah. And then we realised that we needed the tram system now every glider. So we're going back to the old ways, which actually worked, which I find quite interesting, actually, that we're having to revert back. But the question is, is why did we get rid of it in the first place? Exactly. Modernisation. Capitalism demanded Mm. that we need to move into these new industries and build these new sectors but um, on the trams you know that that whole infrastructure is still here we didn't lift the tram lines what we did was tarmacked over the top of them because the car was the star the cars couldn't drive on the roads with the tram line so we got rid of the trams tarmacked over and now we all drive cars on it so if we lift that tarmac we have the infrastructure and those tram lines went out as far as Jordanstown nearly um, right up uh, you know nearly to the top of the Springfield Road so there's a whole tram network infrastructure in this city but yeah. we're being told oh it costs too much to lift that up oh, mm-hmm. no mm-hmm. would you want to see a return money. of something like a tram line sort of a modern tram line lo- love to see the trams <laughs> back I pa- passionately love to um, and this thing about it costs too much money we need to address that messaging as well the change that we need to implement is going to cost a huge amount of money up front mm. but in the long term and this is where short term strategy comes into play so if we Put the massive investment, and, and I don't believe for one minute that we don't have the money. It's what we're doing with the money that I have a problem with. Um, if we invest it in long-term outcomes, then it pays for itself. Uh, and that's what we're failing to acknowledge as well. So and go back even into the, the electricity sector. So when they were given the target of 40% renewable, what that needed was upfront investment. So because so much public money was being put into that, people were complaining, oh, this renewable, it's costing us too much money. We're going to get more on our bills. Mm-hmm. But in, I think it's only a few short years, maybe four years, that's starting to actually return on people's bills. Now people's yep. bills are starting to drop. Every single person pays one P less. And the more that we invest, the more that we save. And it's that's the economic system yep. that we need to move to. Invest in public services because everybody wins in the long term. But yet we just operate on these short-term cycles. Yeah. So uh, I think we're going to switch topics now. So okay. thank you, SP, for joining us. Great. So a topic that... I find quite interesting. Uh, yesterday, I had the chance of interviewing Professor Colin Harvey. He's a professor at Queen's University, and we he is sort of an activist for the idea that a border poll is inevitable. And I've seen you speak at an event, Beyond Brexit, Future of Ireland, where you spoke about the idea of a border poll. And I was sort of wondering, you know, what's your view, if it is inevitable, you know, what's your view on... Sorry. Do you think it's inevitable, or... And if it is, what way do you think you would vote or your party would campaign to vote? I think, of course, a border poll is inevitable. It was given in the Good Friday Agreement. It was set up there as a perfectly valid um, thing that we will face at at some stage. Um, 
I think that right now is probably not the time to be agitating for it. Um, yeah. And I don't think it's any coincidence that when Brexit was brought about, that the border poll became the counter argument. Um, I think that if we if we follow through logically, uh, the call for having a border poll now or in the next year, what we're going to have is Brexit part two, because we haven't had the national discussions about what that would be. Right. You know, we're putting a border poll on the table without knowing what that's going to entail. And to me, that's what Brexit was. And nobody wants to repeat that mess. Yeah. So okay. preparation's key for you. 100%. Yeah. Absolutely. So, um, it's not enough to call for a new Ireland. It's not enough to call for um, a united Ireland. And I think that even that united or new Ireland, they're toxic terminologies because okay. they put an awful lot of people off. Um, so if we want to be including everybody, we need to find the language to have the conversations. We need to have to be able to find the way to have those conversations in a safe way where we can, you know, we're still a deeply divided society. We haven't un uh, overcome the legacy of our past. We're still living with that. We're, you know, passing that on to the next generation yeah. as well. So if it is about tackling and dealing with that then we need to get down into the nitty-gritty of what that is going to be and there's an excellent model in the, the south where they use the citizens assemblies the you know that's a constitutional yeah. requirement and i think that is an excellent model to be using and it is a very democratic model to be using so we can set up these forums have these conversations spend time on them yeah. they're not sound bites that need to come out of it it's a true understanding of what this is going to be and that's what needs to be had and i think it was really interesting when leo Radger was up um, just a few weeks ago at the fellow at the fellow debate, yeah. yep debate and he then said that you know everything will change I forget his exact his words um, and there was shock that's about right that. new constitution new, and of new, course yeah that's of right course. Yeah. you know what are people thinking why was that a shock it's the most sensible thing I've heard in response to having a border poll yeah. you know the whole everything will change it's not that the six counties in the north or whatever Just you want to call join, it yeah. is going to join the system in it's the south country. it's not going to happen yeah. yeah so and that's what needs to happen do you think that there are people who are just calling for a border poll tomorrow with no preparation yeah without a doubt who do you or you know why do you think that is because you know? it's a political agenda okay. and it's a very valid one I'm not I wouldn't be criticising them for doing that you know you've got Sinn Féin they've been in operation for a hundred years and their raison d'etre is to have a united Ireland that's what they're all about <laughs> so it's a perfectly valid political call um, and, and, and nobody should be surprised about that that's what they're about yeah. and then the unionist politicians and political parties want to stay with the union this is what this is the heart of who we are yeah. as a people so I don't see any surprise in either of them but we've got Brexit we've got climate change yeah. and things need to change you know we need to do something very very different um, so I would be keen to start seeing we need to and, and we can go on we talked earlier about having a power sharing executive that works in silos so yeah. ministers don't talk to each other and strategizing and planning um, but as an island if we want to see those changes and move into a sustainable model we need to do that together and we need to look at what we have as an island as a people as a resource what we need in terms of the next decade 20 years 50 years and start planning together for that um, and I think that that will overcome or has the potential to overcome border issues or um, national identity yeah. issues or constitutional issues so if we get to the heart of what we really need to be sustainable and survive and thrive then there is other avenues out there that we can explore and in a much less toxic and in a different way than we're 
supposedly suppose used to. Right. <laughs> Tripping over more. No, no. <laughs> Thank you for that. So the final question I have for you. So at the moment in politics, I feel that we sort of have a habit of sort of forgetting the humanity of politicians. And at the end of the day, everyone involved are all human. And so in a lot of the shows I like to do, I like to sort of look at the you know, upbringing of politicians and stuff. So I, my question to you is, you know, who is Claire mm. Bailey? What was the journey you took from becoming, you know, the leader of the Green Party? I'm really old. This is a long story <laughs> now. <laughs> Feel free. Well, um, I was born in a very working class Catholic family. We lived in a two up, two down house on the Lower Falls. We had two rooms downstairs, two rooms up upstairs outside toilet and no bathroom um, and raised up through the, the conflict or as my children call it the black and white days and all the photographs <laughs> yeah. were black and white um, but during that time my mum she um, was involved with the Dutch charity and used to take kids from the hardest hit areas um, of Northern Ireland out for uh, holidays in Holland so okay. my sister and I uh, used to because my dad worked you know, so he couldn't look after kids. That was the other one. Right. Um, so my mum had to bring my sister and I out to Holland while she worked. So we were fostered by Dutch families while she was out there working. So we were bilingual at the time as well um, and spent a lot of our childhood in, in the Netherlands. Okay. So 19, the late 70s, we moved out um, to Antrim. So there was a whole sort of um, house buying process. So we were regenerating the area and but improving housing anyway. We moved to Antrim. Um, and we had a new house and it had central heating and a bedroom for everybody and a bathroom and a front garden and a back garden and all this green space. But it was a mixed housing estate, so there was Catholics and Protestants living together. There was a Catholic school and a primary school, or Catholic and a Protestant primary school on the estate, and we all went to our different schools, and we all knew we were a bit different, but we were all friends, and it was yeah. all grand. Um, and 1981, Lagan College opened, and my sister and I were both going to secondary school because we're Irish twins. So uh, she's born in July, I'm born in June. So she's the eldest in the year and I'm the youngest in the okay. year. And um, we went through, so we went to Lagan College. And again, you know, just going to school on our first day um, with an RUC armed guard and protests. And uh, obviously I went to Catholic primary school and during P7, you do confirmation, which is nearly at the end of the, the, the year. So when the school got wind, or the parish got wind, that there was two of their congregation going to an integrated school, they helicoptered the bishop in to come and take that confirmation service, um, uh, who stood up on the pulpit and told everybody there were Catholic schools and there were Protestant schools and never the twain should meet, basically. Um, of course, I didn't pay attention. I was 10 at the time, <laughs> you know, but it was a public shaming yeah. of my family's choices, obviously. Um, so we went to Lagan and we all knew that we were a wee bit different. There was always media there. There was always, you know, photographers. We always had to go in front of cameras and say that we're Catholics and Protestants. We're all friends, you know, and we were. Um, and yeah, then I left school, moved to London for a few years. Um, first job I had in London was as a chambermaid and I worked in Grosvenor House Hotel, Park Lane, London. So I went from housing estate in Antrim from, to Park Lane, London yeah. as my next address. But sort of seeing what what wealth truly brings in life and the choices that that brings. Um, and that kind of opened my eyes a wee bit as well. So I came back here um, just before the peace process and ceasefires were being announced. And to me, politics had always been 
like the Charlie Brown teacher on the TV, you know, the <laughs> wah, 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 never made sense. It was all sepia tone and it was all men and it was never relevant to me or, or what I was up to. So yeah. I'd never really engaged. But all of a sudden there was a sense of hope. There were the Women's Coalition was up. There was peace processes being um, talked about. There were deals being done. And it was really exciting. And um, I had this hope for the future after 1998. But I was also pregnant at that time with my first child and making the decision, would I stay here? Would I move away? What was going to happen? Um, but in that time, I decided that I would stay here and I would raise my children. I would go on to have my own Irish twins, as is common in Northern Ireland, you know, which leads me into my activism as well. Um, being a mother uh, changed an awful lot in my life uh, and being responsible for these new human beings and having to bring them up as citizens in their society and being responsible for all that changed the game for me as well. Um, so that's the, the bare bones of where I was coming from. By the time um, my children were settled in primary school, sort of at the P4, P5, um, I decided that I would have to go back into education. I was a single parent. I was living on benefits or working for cash in hand. And if yeah. I wanted anything to offer, I needed to up the ante, basically. So I'm back into education. Um, and I ended up graduating from Queen's with my degree. Um, but the final year of my degree, we were living in private rental as well, actually. Uh, so my son was transitioning from primary to secondary school my daughter was doing her um her transfer test i was entering my final year at queen's and we were made homeless from the the sector so we spent about six months homeless uh, about four five of those living in a, a hostel um and having to come through everything that that brings as well so by the time i got through all that i was a wee bit angry you know yeah <laughs> we of bit course pissed yeah. off at the system if i can say no. um seeing things that needed to be changed and um, things that weren't being addressed that i felt were really really important and that's where i decided that i would step into politics um so when i looked at who i was what i wanted to see looking at political parties that were out there it was the greens were the only ones really that i felt that i could join be myself bring something to and learn and grow with so that's how i I've stepped into where I am. <laughs> thank you for that. So Cheers. Thank you for coming on the show today. It's, it was a fascinating <laughs> show, to say the least. Uh, very, you know, provocative in terms of thinking of what we need to do. Good. So, provoking, sorry. So, thank you for coming on today, Claire. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll see you all next time. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Carter Wickham Show here on Radio YNP. If you enjoyed that podcast and want to listen to more, make sure to check out our catalog here on Spotify, iTunes, and Mixcloud. If you want to check out more, go to RadioYNP.com, where you can get The Carter Wickham Show plus other content from creators from across the network. Also, make sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at Radio YNP. And thank you for listening, and enjoy your day.